Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the book of Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet who was one who recorded many things, what we call the, the servant songs. We see, we've read through many of them throughout this week, that Jesus is the Messiah. What does it mean to be the Messiah, the anointed one? And what exactly did he accomplish while he was on earth? Well, we've seen he brought a homecoming in chapter 35 of Isaiah. We see that we are to marvel at how he handles us in our fragileness as the gentle savior of Isaiah 52, 42, excuse me. Last week, Pastor Davis walked us through chapter 51, which is the call to be brave. That we don't have to fear man, but instead we can walk bravely knowing that he is our great Messiah. And today we're looking at chapter 49. And we'll see what the Messiah does as he is actually bringing in the nations. The Messiah brings in the nations. And what, what do you typically think of when you think of the word nations? Well, if we're honest, right, we typically think of everyone but ourselves. We think they're the nations, right? We think they're the ones who are described here. Every country outside of our own. And this is typical of all nations. We have a very ethnocentric worldview. That's just a fancy way of saying we think we are the supreme nation. Most countries have the same problem, for it is a human problem. And we also know that the Bible describes the Jews and the Gentiles, and, and we know we are the Gentiles. We are not Jewish by heritage or birth. And God is bringing the Gentiles to himself. Here in our text today, we see this phrase. Look there again with me at verse 1. Coastlands, peoples from afar. And so these are just phrases often used by the prophets to describe people as far as to the, the sea that they would see and people from all other locations. He says it down in other verses. He's just talking to the nations. Now, here's why this is unique. Go to chapter 48. He says, hear this. And who does he speak to? O house of Jacob. Or look in verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel. But what did he say in chapter 49? Listen, and who is he speaking to? The nations. This is extremely important for us to understand. When he's saying, listen, or pay attention, typically prophets are bringing words of judgment. You will be judged, for you are not among my people. You will be blank, for you are not among my people. But in this text, in the middle of the uh, the servant songs of Isaiah, he is saying, listen, nations, there's one coming who will redeem you. And before you be like, oh, that's not big a deal. We're included in chapter 49. He's talking about you and me. Non-Israelite people coming under the headship of Messiah. And after all, the servant of Israel described here, as we see, is the light for the nations. And the reason I'm emphasizing this is because here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that as Americans, we have Americanized the Messiah. 
We've made him about making all the other nations like us. I've been to enough other countries and I've seen enough missionary work where sometimes all we bring them is American principles and we leave the Messiah in the dust. And this text is driving us to remember, do not think it's about America. It's about the Messiah. And I don't mean we make him to be like a a person who grew up in the cornfields of Nebraska, but we turn the Messiah's intentions into a Christianized American version. We make the Messiah's purpose about creating American culture, American ideologies all over the globe, excuse me. But Jesus the Messiah came, not so that we could spread the American way, but that we could have Christ heralded everywhere. Even more so, I'm afraid the Messiah, as we understand it as Americans, is simply to bring us greater comforts and privileges, instead of abandoning all for the sake of his name. That's why I love this text, and and I pray that this text will, will drive us to a greater understanding of the framework of the Bible. And here's what I mean by the framework of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, God created what? Everything. Adam and Eve, and they were to populate the earth. But then if you keep reading, the the curse happened in chapter 3. And and God cursed the whole world. Because every thought and inclination of their heart was only evil continually with a flood. And then he focuses in on one man and says, I'm going to create a nation from you. So think of it this way. The Bible starts with a God of the nations. Then he focuses in on one man, Abraham, who's going to build a nation. But then as you keep reading the Old Testament... He focuses in onto one tribe, the tribe of Judah. Then it focuses into one clan, the clan of David. And then it focuses into one person, Christ, who is the climax of the Bible. Now here's the amazing part of the Bible. It actually then goes like this. It narrows in, and then what does it do? And then it zooms back out. Because what does Revelation 21 tell us? Everyone will be around the throne of God. Every tribe, every tongue, every language will be there. The nations will be represented. So the Bible almost zooms in to one man and then says now that's important. Why? Because that one man can bring all nations back under God's rule and reign. And yet we've forgotten it. We've lost the emphasis of the Bible That God delights in the nations worshiping Him. And this is not something new. It's not like something God came up with midway through His process. Listen to Genesis chapter 12. This is the call of Abraham. And He says this in chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, from your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name so great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, what does he say? All the families of the earth will be blessed, a.k.a. the nations. God has always been about what? The nations. There is not a single time in the framework of God's mind where he is focusing on one nation. He is always about the nations. Yes, Israel is his people. And we are grafted into that by God's grace. 
But the driving force of Isaiah 49 is to remind us that the Messiah isn't just to make us more comfortable. The Messiah came so that he will use us to advance his name to where? The nations. So let's study God's word in Isaiah today. Two main points, if you're a note taker, we see. The first point is that the Messiah is the ideal servant of God, Israel. The Messiah is the ideal or the perfect servant of God. We see that in verses 1 through 3. The second main thing we see is that Jesus, the Messiah, undermines all the concepts of power so that the nations will be reached. We see that in verses 4 through 7. The Messiah undermines all concepts of power so that the nations will be reached. Let's get the first point there. Verse 1 again of our text. Again, it will profit if you just look at it with me. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. And then we see, the Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. What, what, what is he emphasizing here? If you're familiar with the Bible, maybe you've heard that phrase before. Formed me in my mother's womb, knew me before I was formed. We, we, we hear it in multiple locations in Scripture. right? We read in Jeremiah chapter 1, this is Jeremiah He says, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Speaking specifically of Jeremiah. Same language. Or even Paul. Paul says this in Galatians. He says, even Paul speaks about his way this way. He says, but when he who set me apart before I was born. And who has called me by his grace. So what is this phrase trying to help us see? The, the, the Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. And as we've seen in other sections of Isaiah, God is not a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants kind of God. But I think we think he is sometimes. He's reactive. He's not in control. But again, when it comes to the Messiah, Isaiah is driving home this peg in the thoughts of our minds. He is not willy-nilly about what he does. That the Messiah has come to carry out God's purposes. See, our triune God has always been and will always be working toward his end goals. And Jesus, the Messiah, is included in that. What about this phrase that from the body of my mother, uh, excuse me, from the body of my mother, he named my name. Again, this should make us think of Matthew one twenty one, where Mary is given a vision of an angel, an account of an angel. And she says, you will name your son Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, God in his infinite wisdom and power sent the Messiah whose name would be Jesus. And now here's an interesting, does anyone know what Jesus means? The Lord is salvation. It's a derivative of the Hebrew Yeshua or Joshua. The Lord is salvation, Messiah, the anointed one. Even in his name, he's saying, I sent him for a purpose. He is bringing salvation. And here's the thing that this text is reminding us. To who? I'm going to say it a lot. The nations. From the beginning... God has worked out his purposes and sent his Messiah, Jesus, God in the flesh, to provide salvation for the nations. Have we forgotten that, church? 
Have we forgotten God cares about the Rajput people of India? That He cares about the indigenous tribes of Australia? The Mongolian people groups scattered through Mongolia. He cares about the people of Nepal, the people of Paris, France. And he cares about the people of Moultrie, Georgia. He says, I've come to provide salvation for the nations. His intentionality is purposeful. He's saying, I formed, I called you, and I placed you in a mother's womb, a virgin birth. And I made your name even declare that I am about salvation. So how is he going to bring about the salvation? Well, look at verses 2. We see that he is actually the most precise statement of God's intentions. Look there with me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. Isaiah using two images here. Did you you catch them? The first one was what? A sword and the second one was what? An arrow. What are these? These are weapons. These are weapons. And if you're familiar with Revelation, we know that Jesus, when he describes himself coming the second time, he says, and a sword will proceed from my mouth, picking up on the same language that Isaiah is using here. John isn't making things up here. He's referencing things that have already been described. But what is this? He says, my mouth is a sharp sword in that it's hid in the shadow of his hand. Jesus was described as the very word of God by John himself. I'm no doubt probably this very phrase was rolling through his mind when he was using the term logos to describe God in the flesh. Or the author of Hebrews who told us that God has spoken in many ways through many prophets at many times, but he has spoken finally and most definitively in whom? His son, Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus come to proclaim? Salvation to the nations. What about this second image of a polished arrow hidden away in God's quiver? The idea of of an arrow is less common in our minds as we read through Scripture, but I don't think there's a a nuance that's emphasized. I think he's using another phrase. And the reason I believe that is, look there what he says in the last part. The sword was hidden in the shadow of his wings. This polished arrow was hidden where? In his quiver. All of these, both of these images speak about utility, preparedness, and effectiveness. Jesus will accomplish what he said he will accomplish. There's no haphazardness or casual use of these weapons. Jesus didn't come haphazardly using his words however he wanted to do it. He was intentional in everything he said. He said, I I cannot speak by my own. I speak what the Father has given me to speak. So Jesus came born of a virgin womb. He lived the perfect life of obedience to God's law that we could not. And he came to die for sinners. The sinners of who? All nations. And Jesus is the most precise statement of God's intentions. What is God's intentions? I'm going to have someone from every tribe and every tongue and every nation around my throne rejoicing in me for all of eternity. And a major implication for us in this room today is this, that if God is this intentional, if he's this effective in carrying out his purposes, where do you fit into the story?
the driving thrust of this? What's the takeaway? If God is about the nations and salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, then what should I be about? The same thing. See, God has not saved you through Christ so that you may simply coast through life. So I love the book of Acts. It says there are two types of people in the church. There's the senders and there's the goers. All of you are called to be that if you're in Christ. You're called to be one who uses your resources and your businesses and your energy and your efforts and your organization skills to send people to the nations. And some of you, God is raising up to be a goer to the nations. Why? Because that's the grand story of Scripture. So today, as we continue to study, ask yourself this question. How am I called to play a part in telling the nations of God's work through Jesus? So we see in verses 1 that He is the one who will carry out God's purposes. We see in verse 2 that He is the Word of God, the precise statement of God's intentions. But then look at verse 3. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Something amazing is there. God calls the Messiah two things here. He calls him servant and Israel. Now, when you're studying the book of Isaiah, this word Israel, it could reference multiple different things. It could represent the, it could represent the land. The little physical land of Israel, it could represent the people of Abraham, the Israelite people, but also here it represents Christ himself. He is the ideal Israel. He is the perfect representation of what God has planned. But did you notice the other one? You are my what? Verse three, servant. Hearing the Messiah called servant, right? It should ring some things that we know to be true about Jesus. Things he said about himself and things that others have said about him. Can we remember what Mark 10 says? I came not to be served, but to what? To serve. To give myself as a ransom for many. Wow. God came down to man. Now here's what you got to remember. He's not speaking to Israel. Who is he speaking to? The nations. How do the nations view God? Like a God. Whatever their God is that they worship. How would they view God? Definitely not as a servant. They would view him as a tyrant, right? They would view him as someone who's power and you had to please him and you have to show your allegiance to him. But they definitely wouldn't see him as a servant. And yet this is what God describes Jesus as. He's going to come. He's going to come as the servant, Israel. In our small groups and redemption group, we've been studying Philippians, and I hope you remember Philippians chapter 2. Although Jesus in the form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. Jesus came as a servant. Becoming what Israel was always intended to be, a servant of God to the nations. Jesus is the ideal Israel. He came so that God would be glorified. 
This is what he says, the dig in the text, in whom I will be glorified. Now, this is just really amazing to wrap your heads around. God is glorified by his son becoming a servant? How upside down do we have it in our American culture? Just our human condition. We think glory comes from having more servants, not by becoming a servant. And there's nothing wrong with having people do your yard, clean your house. There's nothing wrong with these things. But here, Isaiah is reminding us and he's reminding the nations that the one who is coming, the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, he is going to be the servant of God. This is amazing because God could display his glory through great displays of power. He could part the Red Sea, and he did. He could heal lepers, make blind people see, and he did. But here in Isaiah, he's saying the greatest display of God's glory is the fact that God clothed himself in flesh and served you. Wow. The greatest display of God's glory is not in the parting of the Red Sea or the turning blind people into eyes, blind people's eyes to see. The greatest display of God's glory is the fact that Christ was a servant. I just envisioned even the scene, right, where Jesus closed himself in the towel, knelt down and was washing his disciples' feet. What humility. What vulnerability. The Messiah. The ideal Israel would become the only way that the nations could come to the God of Israel. And how did he do this? By serving us. Serving us to the point of death. Even death on a cross. So so what's an implication of this? Well, one would be that we live in a world that seeks to establish position and power in a variety of ways. But God shows us his glory comes through us serving others. This means this is a huge thing. We should marvel that Christ serves us, rebels. But this also means that families, moms, dads, we should be training our children to know the deep things of God. We should be training our children to understand how to read the scriptures and understand who God is. But above all else, moms and dads, we should be training our children to what? Serve. That's our greatest call. That's our greatest task. Are you training your children to humble themselves by the grace of God and to serve the nations? We could do everything else right, but if we don't do this, then we've missed the main thrust of the Bible. Does it make sense? Do you understand the, the importance of this? For the cause of Christ, we go and we serve. But this also means that whether you're old or young, male or female, married or single, you are to love and lead others by how? Serving them. And I praise God because I see that displayed in so many of your lives. Willing, humble service. This service means intentionally dying to your will. And having your way, but instead walking daily in the grace of God to serve both neighbor and the nations, however the Lord sees fit. This section is amazing because it reminds us that the ideal Israel 
was a servant above all else. I mean, imagine for a moment the confidence of Jesus. I mean, God in the flesh. Walking on the earth. I mean, surely this would have been a a triumphant march into Jerusalem. Surely this would have been the easiest task in the world for him. Walking in the capital city. I mean, he was given his calling. He was prepared. He was empowered. How could he fail? But did you read verse 4? Look at it. He went from, he said, now the Messiah himself is speaking. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. What? What is that? This is God. In the flesh, Jesus, the Messiah, coming, called by God, formed in the mother in the virgin womb, given a name, which means the Lord of salvation, his life and his word were the very clearest declaration of it yet. But yet, we see this language in verse 4. God does not come to the arrogance and oppression of our world with greater arrogance and more oppression. He comes in humility and vulnerability as a child destined to die for the crimes he did not commit. This is the Messiah. He sits on the throne. How? How does Revelation describe him on the throne? As a lamb who was slain. Think about that. The the vision of our great king is as a lamb who was slain. So what is he doing here? He's undermined every concept we have of power and how we're going to make a name for ourselves. He's undermining everything we think of, of how we are to advance the kingdom. He's undermining, he's, he's flipping the script, so to say, so that you want to know how the nations are going to be served. You know how the nations are going to be um, proclaimed the gospel to. They're going to do it by church, a church and a people of God who are willing to humble themselves, be vulnerable and be utterly used by God, however he sees fit. He serves them in his humiliation. And in his death, surely when we read verse 4, we think of Jesus on the cross, even his words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt in that moment, in his flesh, in his humanity, he felt discouragement, some capacity. Not discouragement like we feel. But we know he, he was suffered in every way and was tempted in every way. How many of you feel discouragement in the middle of your ministry? This is such a great text for us. Jesus left the joyful, beautiful, perpetual praise of the angels in heaven to be mocked and jeered and ridiculed by his own creation on earth. He felt the weight of bearing humanity's sins and suffering in his flesh. Surely there were moments of discouragement. He felt the full weight of these things in his flesh, in his humanity. But look at verse 4 again. Read the next little bit with me. Yet. That's a great word. Don't skip over the words like yet. Right? Because what is that word emphasizing for us? That there's two dual realities going on at the same time. There is the reality of discouragement in a world while doing ministry. Yet. 
I love that. So we can't say, uh, if I get discouraged, it means I don't trust God. That's not what Jesus is teaching us. Discouragement is part of advancing the kingdom to the nation. There will be discouragement, brothers and sisters. Don't be lied to by the world that says, if you get discouraged, then you don't trust God. That's not true. There are times, yes, where your trust may be waning. But remember, we're a smoldering wick, but yet he doesn't let us burn out. Yet, look at what it says. Surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God. Wow. Discouragement is a reality in the Christian faith, whether it's in parenting your children, discipling other believers, or serving in a local church. There will be times where you will be discouraged because of perceived fruitlessness. Where you will literally feel as if your efforts are in vain, as they have amounted to nothing, just like we saw in verse 4. So what do we do? We follow in what Christ is showing us here. We remind ourselves, if I'm knit in Christ, then my recompense is always bound up in God. My repayment, my inheritance... All of these things, my strength to carry on is found in Christ. We must see the certainty of the Messiah in this text. God had called him, God had empowered him, and God will not abandon him in the darkest of moments when he needed. And I love this because it it brings those things into our minds. And I want you to feel this. You've experienced the feelings of futility and hopelessness, haven't you? Every one of us has experienced, if you're doing any kind of ministry for the Lord, giving of yourself, serving, there is going to be moments where you feel futile and you feel hopeless. It's the reality, but I love this. We also have to hold this in our attention, that we have unbelievable confidence that my recompense is with God. He will do as he sees fit. So I can serve even in the darkest of moments in my life. This text and many others have been such a balm to my soul in the 10 years serving here. I love what Charles Bridges says about this. Charles Bridges is a, an author and pastor, and he says this, Our recompense is not measured according to our success, but our labor. As with our blessed master, Vouchsafed even in the failure of our administration or our ministry. And he quotes this verse, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing yet. Surely my right is with the Lord. My recompense with my God. What is he saying there? He's saying don't let discouragement or futility stop you from doing what you know to be right in ministering and serving. Getting low, getting underneath, getting vulnerable with people around you. Where? To the nations. Study the missionaries. Some of them spent 8 to 10 years before they had their first convert in countries. Can you imagine spending 8 to 10 years, your wife and your children dying? But you believed in something. You believe that God said, go to those people, declare my good news. And the only hope you had is that you were feeling the discouragement and vain nothingness. Yet they knew their recompense was with God and they endured. This is good news for us. That we can continue in our ministry, that we can continue 
without a fear that we've labored in vain. Teenagers, the fear of missing out. Maybe that's what you're in right now. You're you're like, I don't know. I don't know if it's worth hanging on for Christ, saying no to those people. I don't know if it's worth it right now. I don't want to miss out. There's all these cool things teenagers do, and I don't want to miss out. How do you find the strength to not fear missing out and the discouragement of not being invited to this party or to go with this group because you just don't feel like you're included? You, You say, yet my recompense is with God, so I can endure. Grandparents, maybe you have this feeling in the back of your mind of so many wasted years. I could have done this so much better with my kids. I could have done so much better with my years. Maybe this nagging is debilitating you now from doing any kind of service for the Lord. How do you battle that? Yet, my recompense is with God. And you keep going. Husbands, the frustration and potential anger over struggles at home. How do you keep on doing and loving and leading as Christ did when you're so discouraged because you feel like nothing's going right? Yet, my recompense is with God. The nations will be around His throne. We don't have to be discouraged when it looks so bleak in the world around us. Instead, we continue to persevere. How? By serving as our Savior served. Flipping the concepts of power and prestige upside down and saying, my people are, they're known as a serving people and they don't give up. They don't measure themselves by their success. They measure themselves by their faithful labor because they believe their recompenses with their God. Look at me a little further in verse five and following. <laughs> it's just an interesting way that, that Isaiah records this for us. He, he says in verse 5, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. So he's building this portrait in his mind, your mind, right? He's, he's reiterating things he's already said in this chapter and in, throughout the books of Isaiah and even before. He's saying, my people, my Jacob, Israel, they're going to come to me, and you, Messiah, are going to be the one. But then look at what he does in verse 6. He says, too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved Israel. Because you are thinking too small. You think Messiah came just to redeem Israel. You don't understand the type of God that I am. You don't understand the massive things that I'm about. The history changing realities that I am going to make you a light for who? The nations. How beautiful is this? He says the Messiah came clothed in the flesh of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Judah, the family of David. Not just to redeem Judah, not just to redeem Israel, but because he was going to be a light to who? The nations. Too small a thing. For just Israel, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. 
God is going to redeem His people. And verse 6 reminds us that He is going to redeem all nations. That He will have people from all of them. So what does this make us do? Thus says the Lord then, verse 7, the Redeemer of Israel, His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise. Princes. And they shall prostrate themselves. They'll lay down before you because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. The ones who used to mock and ridicule him. The kings who, Psalm 2 say, hold themselves in derision against their God. God sits in the heavens and he laughs at them, saying, one day I will have a people from everywhere and they will willingly, joyfully prostrate themselves before me. Why? Because I'm a God who is about saving the nations. It's so hard to envision that. Like you think billions and billions of people, 3,000 people groups in our world, and they're all going to be surrounding the throne of God one day in the new heaven and new earth. People from India and China and Bangladesh and Taiwan and Sydney. Even some from California. All surrounding his throne. And the one thing we all have in common is that we bow our knee before the greatness of the Lamb who was slain, who is sitting on the throne. Does that excite you? Does it make you want to go to the nations? Does it make you want to give yourself, Lord, I don't want to waste my life Americanizing the Messiah. I want to be about what you're about. I want to be about the gospel going to the nations. I want to live my life in such a way that either I'm a sender or I'm a goer, Lord. I want to serve my neighbors. I want to serve my community. I want to serve. I want to serve because that's what Christ called me to do. So how do you begin this process now? Bowing yourself before the slain land on the throne. You remind yourself your life is not your own. You are not in charge. That's so hard. But it also means that you embrace that part of your sanctification is your humiliation. Explain what I mean by that. We have, if we're not careful, this idea that the Bible describes that when I'm more and more sanctified, it's like we glow. The, the, the people are going to be like, ooh, look how holy they are. I mean, you're going to see they're like, they radiate when they walk around. But you study the Bible, if you look at church history, and you look at even modern day saints, the most godly people are the greatest servants of all. They're willing to be humiliated for the sake of Christ. Part of your sanctification, part of you beginning to believe that right now is to understand you will serve and there will be times where you will be ridiculed and you're okay with that. Why? Because my recompense is with my God. How does this change your evangelism? 
This means you are very careful not to lead people to an Americanized Messiah, but the one of the Bible who calls you to die to self, to cling to Christ. Three major implications as this week leading up to the incarnation of Christ, Christmas Day. Three things I would just encourage you and your families to do. Spend time as a family marveling at the incarnation. Like just, just maybe sit there as a family and say, hey, let's think about what kind of songs were being sung about Jesus before the world was formed. What did the angels declare? What did they announce? And then maybe go read the Gospel of Luke or Mark about a baby clothed in flesh to be ridiculed, scorned, and mocked. That's our God. The ideal servant of God. To marvel at His incarnation this week. But also magnify his humiliation. Magnify his humiliation. What does that mean? That means you marvel the fact that he died a death he did not deserve. You are grateful. God's people are grateful servants. We rejoice not just in the incarnation, right? But we have to go to where the end, where he came to the death. Spend time reading and contemplating the depths of the mocking, the spitting, the Abuse that he took. And think about those three hours of darkness where he drank the crap of the wrath of God for all who would believe. And you know what? If we do one and two, our, our days would be different. But we still would miss the main point of this text. We need to marvel at his incarnation, we need to magnify his. Humiliation, but brothers and sisters, you need to mirror his mission. Which one of your neighbors doesn't know the Lord? What nation are you praying for on a daily basis? How are you leveraging every ounce of your being so that the gospel can go to the Rajput people of India? And maybe some of you in this week, God's going to begin to stir in you. I, I want to go. I want to be one of the goers. That's what a church does, right? We, we proclaim Christ and by his mercy and his spirit, he raises up some people who say, I want to go. And we as a church want to say, we'll send you. We have to mirror his mission. But that's because we want to magnify his incarnation and marvel at his humiliation so that we will one day see Every tribe, tongue, and nation around his throne. Where do you play your part? For Christ came to be a light to the nations. If everybody would flip with me to 2 Corinthians. We'll finish with this first. 2 Corinthians. Chapter 4. If you've got a pew Bible, it's on page 965. I would say this is probably Paul's modern day uh, New Testament terms of very much what we saw in Isaiah 
49. He encourages us here, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Just one comment. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercies of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth... We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Pay attention to verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with And he he does this mirror. He says we have to proclaim one thing. Jesus Christ is Lord. With meaning there has to be mirrored with that something. Something's merged with that. And what? We are whose servants? The world's servants for whose sake? Christ's. Do you see that? With ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. You've been called to be like your Savior. Serve the Lord with gladness. Proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, for He is the light to the nations. And you are part of that great call. Do not grow weary. For our recompense is with our God. Let's pray. Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultrie.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.